0: Calgary Next is powered by Calgary Economic Development. Calgary is the place where bright minds and big ideas come together with an unmatched spirit to help solve global challenges. Our guest this morning is a born and raised Calgarian father, world-renowned Scotch whiskey expert, well, with a name like Ferguson, I didn't expect him to be a Sangaria guy. <laughs> and he's the owner of Kensington Wine Market. He's had a quite an interesting journey to get to where he is today. Andrew Ferguson joined us this morning to tell us about it. And we were hoping and disappointed that he didn't bring <laughs> samples with him. <laughs> it's the weekend after all, Andrew, and we were hoping for some samples. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Tara.
1: <laughs> well, we're good morning. We're saying we'll just hop right on over to the Kensington Wine Market right after this. We, we've always
2: samples. got some cool things open for people to try. <laughs>
1: yes, you do. And so the name of your store is the Kensington Wine Market. How did mm-hmm. it get to be known as one of the world's top whiskey shops?
2: Well, a lot of it has to do with privatization of the liquor market, which happened uh, earlier in Alberta than anywhere else. And our business, before I was actually even of age, uh, started as a wine only retailer in 1992. We were one of a half dozen uh, wine only shops that were allowed to operate uh, outside of the Alberta government liquor system at the time. Uh, A couple years later, Ralph Klein decided one night, uh, probably after a few, that he was going to throw the door open and privatize the whole industry. And we had the decision at that time to stay as a wine only shop or become a full service liquor store. And the owner at the time Uh, Nancy Carton thought it made sense to be able to offer beer and spirits to the people in the Kensington area. And at that time we were the only liquor store in probably a one kilometer or two kilometer radius. Mm -hmm. And so that idea, even though it was initially only a a wine exclusive shop was that we wanted to be able to offer different options for people too. Yeah. Um, So the the whiskey side, I guess comes in um, with, we were selling whiskey before I started there in 2003 uh, but for me, it was something that I really kind of felt, uh, akin to as far as a drink, not just because of the style, but also because of a connection to my own heritage.
1: Okay. So Ooh. that was what started it. Yeah. Did, now was your family into scotch? Or? Uh,
2: my, I remember my dad drinking it as a child, but it was never something like I was introduced to beer and wine, um, by my parents, but I, it was never something that, was introduced to me. I, I, I found it at university. I met some friends volunteering on a political campaign, one of whom was really into Scotch, and he got me into it. And when I f- was exposed to it in this work environment and was able to try new things, uh, it just kind of snowballed. And it it's really one of those things where our whiskey se- selection and my own knowledge and experience kind of grew organically. There was no grand scheme to do this, and timing was probably crucial too like i just i happened to be in the right place at the right time in a segment of the market that was going to go through 15 20 years of growth
0: since you, since you didn't bring us samples, and we're very disappointed. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> David,
1: David is clearly going through something. I mean, it's a Saturday morning.
0: So so what is the right <laughs> way to drink scotch? Is it with ice, without ice? Is it uh, warm? Is it cold? Oh, yeah. L- uh, give us the uh, cold note version, of, because I know that you also chair or head of the uh, scotch yeah, community
2: I'm, I'm, I'm in, I, in Canada yeah well I ran a, I ran a whiskey club that uh, based here in calgary um, i 've uh, yeah i 've been doing tastings and and educating people on it for, forever. The answer to your question is that there is no one way to do it. I mean there are people that prefer it in cocktails there 's people who like to drink it neat that 's generally my preference, even if it 's at a higher ABV like up to sixty percent or so what we call cast strength. Um, what's what's ABV? Uh, alcohol, alcohol by volume. So 60 so th- percent alcohol. Oh yeah. So whiskey. Oh D- don't drink and drive. That. Yeah. <laughs> forty is forty percent is really just an artificial strength. It said it was a, just decided that that would be the bare minimum strength, uh, and you can have degrees above that. And uh, generally, with that, you get less water, so you get more concentration of flavor. Um, but it can be overpowering for some people. So adding water to some whiskeys, some people like to do that. It helps to cut through the alcohol. Um, it can also change the profile a little bit by adding water. Uh, ice is something that as long as you understand what's happening, there's nothing wrong with it, but it does dilute uh, the aroma and the flavor. You're chilling it down. And by doing so, you're you're reducing the amount of aroma coming out of the glass and because 70% of what your, your brain interprets as taste comes from your nose, you're actually dulling the flavor as well, too. So that said, there's people who that's how they like to drink it. And if that's how they enjoy it, then, then power to them. It's, it's their whiskey. But,
0: but if um, I go to Scotland, how should I drink it?
2: They would, most of them will drink it neat, neat with maybe a, a little bit of water added to it. But that would be, that would be it.
1: You know what I love is when somebody is really passionate about something like you clearly you know a lot about scotch um then it's contagious mm-hmm. for people around so do you find that your circle of friends has suddenly become very interested in <laughs> scotch or
2: um no but I've, i over the last 20 years i've built a community of friends and people who have an interest in that so i have a couple of friends who who Enjoy whiskey, but none of them are really like really into it, mm-hmm. um, but i 've made friends over time who are and yeah it 's like a lot of different sub subgroups in in humanity where you find people with a common interest and you kind of geek out together and uh, i I actually I had a little bit of that last night that got out of control where uh, one of our yeah. buddies was in town from from Nova Scotia for the first time in f- four or five years and a couple of guys each brought over bottles that we all wanted to try of things that are really unusual. And so, yeah, there's a real sense of community about it. I think that's something I've always loved. Um, and, you know, when you're having a couple of drinks that loosens people's inhibitions and, you know, kind of helps create that sense of mm-hmm. um, community and fun.
1: Was it in the kitchen and did a guitar come out?
2: Uh, no guitar. Uh, it was on the back deck under the, <laughs> under the awning.
1: Wow. Well, with days like this. Yes. That's as it should be.
0: Usually, I mean, I'm talking about myself and people that I know, usually we stick to drinks that we know. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, we started the show. Um, last week was the first time I tried old fashioned mm-hmm. someone that, never tried scotch or whiskey or bourbon. Mm -hmm. What are the steps you recommend to go into that world?
2: I I mean, there's no one way in, Um, you know, there used to be a real sense of um, this real sense of machismo around whiskey, which I think is starting to go away, which is great. Um, And, people would think that like, you know, women will like certain types of whiskeys and men will like others and it's, it's complete rubbish. Um, really, it's just to go in with an open mind to try new things. And when you go and sit down and do a tutored tasting where you're going through a range of flavors, that's probably the best way to get in there because you might not like the first one or the last one. You might find there's something somewhere in the middle that that strikes a chord with you. So really the only way to to, to go in is to go in feet first and, and try some things and see if there's things that do suit your palate and maybe others that don't. It's like wine. You know, most people would not start a wine drinker by giving them port. Um, Mm. Maybe you'd start with white wine or, you know, some lighter reds. And it's, there's kind of a similar philosophy to how to introduce people to whiskey. I think most people, if given the chance, can find something to like in there. Um, my, my wife might be one of the few exceptions to that, but uh, uh, yeah, there, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big confusing um, subject until you kind of crack the door open a little and get a little bit of knowledge and that'll help you decide where to go from there.
0: So Kensington Wine Market still does tasting for uh, scotch and whiskeys and yeah, bourbons? We,
2: we do scheduled tastings in store where you can come in and sit down and one of my staff will, will guide you through a tasting Uh, When people come in looking for things or just wanting a bit of info, we often have bottles open. So you can come in and try a couple things that my staff will select for you to give, give you an idea or for us to help determine what sorts of things you like. And then the other thing that we still do, we started doing this during COVID. I actually had to push the government to change the rules a bit to do it, but we do virtual tasting still, too. They're still very popular. And I know the Zoom fatigue, and people talk about that, but one of the advantages to doing these tastings at home is they don't have to worry about getting home afterwards. And mm. uh, if you've got kids, you can do it after you put them to bed, and you know, you're know you not worrying about getting a babysitter. So,
1: so you uh, just send, do you send the alcohol to their homes, or do they pick it up in well, advance? A little,
2: little bit of both, yeah. Okay. But I mean, we plan these things out a couple months in advance. The kits are ready for a month or so before the tasting, mm-hmm. and then you join us online, and it's not... Someone in a, in a computer screen talking at you for for an hour and a half. It's usually myself, one of my one of my coworkers, and maybe a special guest and we'll have a conversation about it while we work through them and taste through them with people.
1: I used to live right near the Kensington Wine Market. And one thing I really appreciated, I mean, this is years and years ago and I didn't know anything about wine and I could go in there and ask anything. Mm -hmm. And I always got the greatest suggestions. Everybody was so pleasant and helpful. And I just, I never felt intimidated. It was just like having a conversation. I love it. We got to we got to take a break, but we're going to come back. We want to find out a little bit more about how you ended up buying the Kensington Wine Market after working there for a long time. And we also want to thank Calgary Economic Development for their sponsorship of Calgary Next. We'll be right back.
0: Calgary Next is powered by Calgary Economic Development. Calgary is the place where bright minds and big ideas come together with an unmatched spirit to help solve global challenges. Calgary Next is powered by Calgary Economic Development. Calgary is the place where bright minds and big ideas come together with an unmatched spirit to help solve global challenges. We're back we are with our guest, Andrew Ferguson, owner of Kensington Wine Market. Let's talk about wine for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I immigrated here in 1998, my first kind of uh, business that I was looking for was a wine store, mm-hmm. to buy a wine store. Because before I immigrated... During my midlife crisis, I did a bartender course. And um, so 1999, everybody tells me, I mean, Calgarians don't drink wine. They drink beer and a little bit spirits, but you'll be poor if you go for wine. Mm -hmm. It seems that that has shifted in the last 15 years, maybe. What, Mm -hmm. What made that shift? what made us become you know wine consumers and consumers
2: I, I think there was always an element of the the Alberta consumers who were really into wine um, but going back to before privatization one of the challenges is that you had a government-run retail system where you know people who were in the job maybe because they had some interest in it maybe not were making the decisions about what everybody got to drink and I know one of the stories they love telling and this is before my time is that uh, the main buyer for the AGLC was really into German wines. And they would fly him to Germany every year. So Alberta had an incredible selection of German, <laughs> German wines. Ice wine. S- yeah, basically really sweet, you know, Rieslings and...
0: Gewurztraminer and Ice wine. All that
2: stuff, well, <laughs> yeah. We have
1: lots of Germans here. We, 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 we yep. do,
2: and like Germany makes great wines. But yep. I mean, the world of wine is so much bigger than that. And Germany is frankly, a small, a very small piece of that. So shops like ours got to start by sourcing things from places like Australia that no one had really thought of before. Argentina, um, obviously the classic countries like Italy and France were a big part of that. Um, but one of the things we've held on to, even after we became a full service store, is we're always trying to look for things that are unique, that are new, that are different. We we pride ourselves on having in, in wine and, and spirits, the kind of selection where people come in and they they, they might get a little confused because they don't see things that are familiar. And we, we we like that because it's an opportunity to have a conversation about something that maybe is a hidden gem. Uh, as with all industries, like the most successful players are really good at marketing and really good at creating brands. And people feel really comfortable with those brands, but they're sometimes afraid to, to sort of stray outside them. And, you know, our, our business is all about finding cool and, and unique things. And then we love telling people about them.
1: So um, women my age tend to go through a phase where, because I know I'm not the only one, I hear this all the time, and you're smiling, so I feel like maybe you know what I'm going to say, is that you start to go through a phase where you're like, I can't drink red wine anymore. Mm -hmm. I get massive headaches, and I can't sleep at night, and (laughs) it's not working, but I love red wine, but it hurts. Mm -hmm. So what do you have to offer those of us who love red wine, but can't take those sulfate sulfites or yeah. whatever it is?
0: Yeah. I mean, Dara and my wife.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, my, my partner as well too. She has the same, uh, right. issue. She rarely drinks red wine for that reason. You know, there's a lot of disagreement as to what is the cause. Um, I know sulfites gets thrown out there a Mm -hmm. lot as a cause. It's not likely the main one. And the reason why is like, if you think about a lot of the vegetables that you'll get at a big grocery store, a lot of those are preserved with sulfites and sulfites are in a lot of our food Mm -hmm. and they actually occur naturally in wine in small, small quantities. Um, they can be removed. Um, I think there's a bit of a process there. Um, it's more likely that it might be something to do with the tannins. Like the reason red wines are red is not because the juice is necessarily red, but it has more to do with the skin contact. And when you're crushing the grapes, leaving the wine in contact with the skins. And so you might be picking up things from the skins that are causing that, or it could be oak. Like in a lot of red wines, you're you're getting a certain oak treatment. So Mm. there's, there's a number of things that could be causing that. I don't think it's one solution, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, white wine, I think, does tend to be pop- popular with women in their 30s and 40s, maybe because it's refreshing. Thank you for saying
1: 30s or 40s. Appreciate that. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's, that, that's just the thing. The other thing is, you mentioned Argentina, that you mm-hmm. have wines that come in from Argentina. Somebody told me that they are naturally organic because they don't use pesticides there because they, they plant olive trees in between.
2: And and is that true? That that may be true of some producers. I Mm. highly doubt it's true of the whole industry. I mean, as with any industry, you're going to have better players with better practices uh, and you're going to have others that are not. And generally speaking, I think the, if you're, you know, the lower you're going price point wise, the more likely you're going to have chemicals and all kinds of things added because it's hard, even even the best winemakers who don't want to use those interventions, it's hard to to make them because nature is unforgiving. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you think about it, winemaking is farming and farming can be tough as, you know, people are going to learn this summer with, you know, the drought conditions in Alberta. Um, But I guess the one last thing I would say about that is organic wines, I think, and biodynamic wines, they're really trying to get away from that, use natural cures to try to preserve things and, and, and that includes, you know, having a more balanced ecosystem even between the vines to, to create a better and, and mm. more controlled environment.
1: You mean like the olive t- planting the olive trees yeah. and whatnot? Or n-
2: letting natural flowers and grasses grow in mm. between. I mean there's different things you can do. Is there a headache the next morning? That's
0: nothing to do with, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. with age.
1: <laughs> when you have an entire bottle, you're yeah. going to No, but it's it can be within like half a glass. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I know. My wife yeah. has the same thing. She moved back to white. She mm-hmm. was white, then red, now back to white.
1: If somebody figures that one out, <laughs> that's going to be a pretty penny. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, miss, I miss good red wine, I must say.
0: One of the things that uh, for years was, was discussed was pairing. And mm-hmm. there was kind of a rule of thumb. Beef and uh, uh, is red wine, and seafood is white wine. Is this still the or it, today? It's whatever I like.
2: I mean, most people, I think, at the end of the day, if you you're not you don't need to be all that fussy about it. You can enjoy what you want with whatever you want. Um, but I mean, you can have steak with champagne. I mean, you don't mm. have to. There's a lot of different I don't like pairings. <laughs> well, that's really unfortunate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can have scotch with it then.
0: So, so basically, the whole notion of there's, dividing it to, into different
1: foods.
2: I, I don't product. think the lines need to be as black and white as, as they once were. Um, you know, there's always things that will go better with certain things or, or will complement each other better. Um, but I don't think it's quite as black and white as you don't have to do. You can do whatever you want, it's your wine.
1: <laughs> I love that attitude. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Kensington Wine Markets. You yeah. worked there for about twelve years before mm-hmm. you actually bought it in twenty fifteen. So how mm-hmm. did that transpire?
0: Started as a driver.
2: Yeah, well, I love it. I'd never like I'd never intended to get into the liquor industry. It sort of happened by accident. I'd, I was away traveling and I was coming home, and my mom had found a job for me before I'd even gotten home as this kind of her way. And a friend of hers owned the wine market and needed someone to help do deliveries at Christmas. And so I started there with, you know, the intention of just working until Christmas and then, you know, figuring out which direction my life was going to go in. And I really liked the shop. I liked the the community, both of um, people in the industry, but the customers we had. And, you know, at that time in my life, it was, a, it was a safe place for me to work it gave me an opportunity to learn over time i had the opportunity to do travel i ran a tour company and used to take people on whiskey tours in scotland japan kentucky and it just the, my boss nancy she was incredibly supportive and gave me a lot of opportunity to grow and over time you know as she got a little older and was was starting to think about her exit strategy you know, she was going to sell the business to someone. And I think she wanted to sell it to somebody who would continue the business's legacy and and carry that forward. And so I, I was fortunate to have that opportunity and to have the support at the time of my, my father and brother for a little bit of, of financing so that we could do it and, and kind of keep it in the family.
0: What was the most expensive Scotch you ever yeah. had?
2: Um, well, the most expensive one I've actually still got a bottle of it in my shop. Okay, um,
0: we're, we're, when we are done here, um,
2: yeah, samples of that are a little are, are a little <laughs> tough, but it's uh, it's one hundred and forty thousand dollars. It's a, a Glenlivet eighty year old. What um, I've
1: never even heard of that kind
2: of cost. Well, and, and there was a Macallan, there a single bottle that came to Canada last month that that went for sale in BC. I don't know if it's sold yet, but it was like two hundred and forty thousand. I think. Why um, is it so expensive? Well, I mean, to, to, for first of all, there's very few whiskies over fifty, sixty years of age because the companies never saw an an opportunity for that 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 market to be there. They didn't think there'd be a demand for this. Most of them, you know, make blends, sell young single malts, and there's only a handful of companies, including this one, Gordon McPhail, that that saw this as a future opportunity. And, you know, they're family-run business. They think in terms of generations and putting things down for the, the future generations. Um, and even in the case of this Macallan, it was a cask that that Macallan, who had also never thought of maturing whiskeys this long, bought back from Gordon McPhail, this family-run business that independently bottles whiskey. So the reason, the reason they're expensive is because, A, it's hard to mature things that long, even if you you had the patience and the financing and the the room to do so um you know there's no guarantee that it's going to continue maturing to those great ages so those are the reasons like there's you can count in the hundreds the number of bottles over 80 years that have ever been released it's under 500 um so that plays a huge part into it like age rarity and then if it's good that can add to the price too It also doesn't hurt that these things come in like elaborate decanters and fancy boxes and all that's going to add to it too. The marketing, the marketing touch.
1: Well, I mean, for $140,000 presentation, Mm
2: -hmm. it's everything.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Andrew Ferguson, the owner of Kensington Wine Market. Calgary Next is powered by Calgary
0: Economic Development. Calgary is the place where bright minds and big ideas come together with an unmatched spirit to help solve global challenges.